I'm Farai Chidea, and this is Our Body Politic Extras, where we get to share with you the extended versions of some of our best conversations. Let's dive into this edition of OBP Extras. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And this week, foreign policy expert and host of YouTube show Oh My World, Hagar Shamali, is back to lead our conversation. We're talking about the rise in populist nationalism in Brazil and across the world. Take it away, Hagar. Thanks, Farai. It's great to be here. Joining me this week is Bumi Akinusotu, who's a foreign policy enthusiast and creator of the What in the World podcast. She has spent much of her career working to bring greater diversity into foreign policy and national security careers. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Bumi. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much, Hagar. It's so great to to be here and chat with you about this. Yes. We're also joined by our very own Farai Chidea, creator and host of Our Body Politic and someone who's truly become an inspiration to me. Hi, Farai. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. And we are actually seeing each other face to face. We're in the same studio, uh, which is not usually how it rolls. So it's a it's a great, great pleasure. It's very exciting. I'm happy to be here. This week, we're discussing the political situation in Brazil against the backdrop of rising populism around the world. On January 1st, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, often referred to as Lula, was inaugurated as president of Brazil. He is leftist, and he narrowly won the presidential election in October against far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. This is actually Lula's second stint in this role. He was Brazil's president from 2003 to 2011, and his economic reform helped lift at least 20 million Brazilians out of poverty. But his administration was also marred by corruption scandals. After leaving office, Lula served 19 months in prison for corruption and money laundering allegations, but he was released because of a technicality in the law. Fast forward to today, days after Lula's inauguration, thousands of Bolsonaro supporters, under the false belief the election had been rigged, stormed Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court, and presidential offices in the country's capital, Brasilia. After several hours, the police were able to get control and detained roughly 1,500 protesters. This scene was eerily similar to the January 6th insurrection in Washington, almost exactly two years to the day. So we wanted to discuss what led to Brazil's own insurrection, the extent to which it was inspired by the January 6th events here, and what this means for global populist nationalism. Bumi, I want to start with you. Can you help us set the scene a bit and give us some insight into the general atmosphere in the run-up to the presidential election in Brazil in October and the factors that could have contributed to the violence that took place in the capital? Absolutely. So much like the United States, as you said in your wonderful introduction, um, there was a lot of misinformation already leading up to the election. Um, On the part of Bolsonaro himself, outright coming out, talking about, uh, you know, the the polls being rigged and issues um, with information. So misinformation, just like ours, uh, you know, up in in 2020, there was just a lot of, quote unquote, fake news phrases being tossed around. Um, The second, similarly to the United States, where you saw a lot of uh, elected officials at that time also harboring hate and sharing information that wasn't accurate, stirring the pot 
amongst already sensitive population, I would say. And the thing that is interesting for me, the third piece I'll mention is around the faith-based community and the evangelical contingencies in Brazil um, that just like in the United States, were kind of backing Bolsonaro and many of the insurgents and sort of spreading information or ideologies that left people in fear frankly. Um, And so those were sort of the three prongs that were a part of that environment leading up to the election. And can you also add to that a little bit? How tense was it during the election, right? This was a tight race. Can you also give us a little color on that too as well? Yeah. So (laughs) again, I keep going back to the United States, but uh, there was just so, there's so much uh, violence. I mean, actually, I want to go back to a situation from 2018 that I think I would call this like a prelude to this. um, And that is the assassination of uh, Mariel Franco, who was an elected official. Um, She was assassinated. uh, And and that sort of stirred a lot of conspiracy theories around her assassination, who assassinated her and so on and so forth. So this violence is not new to Brazil when it comes to elected officials. And so, yes, so I would say that in the lead up to the election, there were online, if you want to even look at the digital space, just a lot of online uh, sort of banter. And I and I believe from what I have read, similar to the United States, a lot of this had been monitored by sort of federal agencies in Brazil. But, you know, I don't know if people were thinking, oh, it's just not possible that things could happen and we've got it under control, uh, but they didn't. And so we saw what happened that day. Mm, So safe to say things were tense. A few American influencers and allies of Donald Trump made a number of public remarks regarding the election in Brazil. For example, on his podcast, Steve Bannon pushed a theory that the election in Brazil was stolen, and he encouraged opposition even after Bolsonaro said he would step down. Ali Alexander, who organized the Stop the Steal movement, told Bolsonaro supporters on social media to, quote, do whatever is necessary. Farai, is the United States now exporting far-right populism? What do you think is motivating these far-right Americans to wade into Brazilian politics? Well, first of all, let me start with something that is um, a little to the side, but very much related, which is that Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, made the decision to replatform Donald Trump. Um, And this is being just very heavily decried by people in the global and national security worlds. You know, there's something that's it's basically scholars and experts who form something called the Real Facebook Oversight Board. And they wrote uh, a piece replatforming Trump on Facebook is a grave threat to democracy. He has put down the dog whistle and picked up a bullhorn. So one way to understand the people you're talking about, Steve Bannon and Ali Alexander, is they are people with bullhorns and they are heavily funded. Like they're not just like, hi, I'm here to create an ethno-nationalist movement in every country that I can get my hands on. They're being paid to do it. And I get very disappointed when people don't follow the money and realize how deeply funded this is and where you can have Steve Banning swanning around Europe with people like Viktor Orban of Hungary. Like, uh, folks, let's not make this a preview of what's going to happen in the United States. And we have a real um, interest in understanding that the weaponization of ethno-nationalism 
could lead to national civil wars as well as a global war. Uh, I, I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. And so the way that I think about the sort of ethno-nationalist movement that Steve Bannon is heavily profiting from is it's like the mafia. The mafia in Sicily is not the mafia in Philadelphia, but they're both mafias. And in some cases, they have beef with each other. And in some cases, they collaborate. You know, like I think of the sort of ethno-nationalist movement as a bunch of global mafiosos who are out there for profit. And unfortunately, a lot of people are buying into them just because they believe they're right. But like these these dudes are out there making major bank. They have a lifestyle supported by whipping up hatred and being what the book um, How Civil Wars Start and Barbara Walter calls ethnic entrepreneurs, who are people often from traditionally powerful groups like white Americans in the United States who fear declining influence and then go on the warpath against everyone else. So I think that, you know, one of the differences is, you know, for Jan 6, Donald Trump was a lame duck president. He was still the president of the United States with a pending inauguration, but he was still the president and he failed in his duty as commander in chief in terms of January 6th. Um, with Bolsonaro, he was no longer in office. Uh, another difference is that Brazil had a dictatorship, and there's kind of these echoes in the civic structure of people. I mean, dictatorships don't happen when everyone thinks they're wrong. They happen when some people think they're right. And so there are echoes in the Brazilian political system of people who felt empowered and strong. And there are people all over the world who like dictatorships if they're on the winning side of the equation. So I think that it's a feedback loop. I think Americans have always been uh, in the modern era dominant in media. You know, like Hollywood is one form of media and storytelling that that we dominate, but we also spend a lot of time both in governmental and non-governmental ways messaging about democracy, sometimes for very selfish reasons, some sometimes for very healthy reasons. So, you know, all of which is to say, I think it's important for people to understand how people are selling ethno-nationalism for profit in a bunch of different countries with different politics, but for the same reasons, money and power. You know, you hit a very interesting point that is a perfect segue to Bumi, which is that the Brazilian Bolsonaro supporters after the election last October camped out outside the military headquarters in Brazil and called on the military to take over. And so, Bumi, if you could unpack a little bit the comparison to our own 2020 election, Unlike in the United States, Bolsonaro's supporters stormed their Congress after the president was inaugurated. But they believed something. And a lot of that is part of the misinformation that you highlighted. So can you dive a little deeper into what was their goal? What did they believe their goal was? What was it they were calling for? And maybe maybe can you offer a little bit of some examples of the misinformation that that may have driven them. Yeah. Oof. There's so, <laughs> so much. Um, what I understand is within the Brazilian military itself, there were factions that were supporting those who attacked 
in Brasilia that day. Similarly to the United States, we know that the Capitol Police, there were individuals who supported what happened on January 6th as well. So that's one aspect of sort of the groups of people. Uh, I would also go right back to the beginning where I talked about some of the um, faith-based leaders who want to ensure that the quote-unquote moral compass of Brazil is protected. You had highly respected evangelical uh, individuals saying that, you know, uh, Lula was going to erase sort of the morality of Brazil and turn Brazil backwards and, you know, and all of this. And so you had, I guess it could look at it in terms of the faction. So then you had sort of similar to the United States, um, men, young men uh, who felt left out or feel left mm. out of uh, the economic and social apparatus of the of the country. Same thing here in the United States, where there's been lots and lots of studies and, and look uh, research and op-eds about white American men who don't benefit from globalization and who don't benefit from the advances in technology. Um, and so I think it's the same thing in Brazil, where you see segments of young men uh, who feel like they're just not being considered um, as it relates to the advancement of the country. And it's been sinking in their minds that they will go extinct, that they won't have jobs, that they can't be the head of household, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are going to sort of eliminate their existence. <laughs> And so um, elected officials, religious leaders, obviously uh, other folks in the community have sort of fed into these ideas of, of sort of elimination, right? Um, that our, our values, our, our ways of living are at threats because of the way Lula wants to support the country or lead this country. Uh, so it, it runs deep, uh, Hagar. I won't say that. I can't even begin to explain all the other aspects. I, I did want to touch on what Farai was talking about with the media, and um, perhaps you all can relate in this idea of WhatsApp. Um, WhatsApp has been a huge platform for misinformation and for sort of these like smaller groups uh, to sort of, uh, you know, share what's going on or spread additional false information. And so I'm really curious, maybe we could talk about this later, about the level of accountability that's going to come uh, on the part of the tech industry and also um, others to, who sort of have those platforms that Farai talked about um, that have been fueling mm -hmm. this this conversation and this these actions. Sure. Actually, one of the examples of, in addition to other American influencers that egged on Bolsonaro supporters was Elon mm -hmm. Musk. He also, I just didn't list him because there were a huge list of examples, <laughs> but he went on Twitter after taking over Twitter and said that as they were doing their studies of their, as you remember, when he took over, they were examining Twitter and, mm -hmm. and policies and firing people and so on. And he came out to say that that he was questioning whether Twitter was over censoring the Bolsonaro, for example, uh, for the statements that he made. And and there was a lot of misinformation going on. And and some of it was back and forth, by the way. And um, but that ended up instilling this lack of trust and mm -hmm. further fueling this idea that, oh, wait, you know, wait a minute. Oh, so so maybe Twitter fed into one uh, supporting one side more than the other. And so I think you're absolutely right is that yeah. they play a large role in in make in swaying people and. And yeah, can I can them. I just get on my soapbox again? I'm sorry, I'm going to have to pull pulling this soapbox over multiple times. 
And this was not about what you said, but it's about how people think about this. Free speech is about your relationship to the government. Your, as a citizen of America's relationship to the government. It is not about what Facebook slash Meta does. It's not about what Twitter does. You know, like, just like you don't try to sell strollers that harm children, like there are these horrible strollers where kids have gotten their hands caught and their fingers cut off. That's basically what we've got. Like, right now social media weaponized by uh, people who want these ethno-nationalist movements are like, they're like exploding cars and strollers cutting off the fingers of kids. You know, it's just been proven that this is an accelerant that helps ramp up uh, everything from outright civil war to Jan 6 situations, whatever. And I think it's irresponsible not only of Elon Musk, but backers like Larry Ellison, another one of the the great tech gods, to go on some veta claiming this is about free speech. It's like you want power and you're empowering other people who want power. But like if America goes to hell in a handbasket, I don't think that it's going to be good for Elon Musk's business model. You know, there are people who are ethno-nationalists trying to take down the power grid, what happens to electric cars then? (laughs) Hmm. You know, so I think that the failure to distinguish between the concept of free speech as it applies to citizens and government and private industry is one thing, but also to understand that the manipulation of politics results in real-world death, real-world harms, and I don't think we've begun to see the beginning of what is possible. It it makes you wonder, actually, also, did Bolsonaro himself, by the way, play a large role in encouraging this violence? Bumi, can you shed a little light on that as well? How, what was his reaction to all of this? Yeah, so we know he, like, fled, or well, not fled, that's my phrase, but he came to, he, he, he found his way to Florida. But the damage had already been done, right? I mean, as we've been saying, this has been happening, you know, Back last year, and even if you want to argue, once he started um, in his in his position, his his political actions, and not to mention the COVID nineteen pandemic and his handling um, or lack thereof <laughs> of of the pandemic and the way he talked about the pandemic or COVID nineteen as though it wasn't a big deal, as though it wasn't real, or that it it wasn't as harmful as the world was making it seem. Is he still in Florida? I don't think he. I think I think right now he's still there. I believe he's still there. Um, uh, Representative Castro and some others have called on uh, additional investigations into anything that the U.S. or U.S. Um, citizens or organizations have done uh, may have done to fuel what's happening in Brazil. But for sure, Bolsonaro has has not helped the situation. Um, and and while he did try to come out like President Trump late in the game tried to come out and say like you know y'all need to chill out, the damage had already been done. And I would actually argue that. The power isn't in Bolsonaro. The power isn't in those enablers, um, the influential individuals, again, from various parts of the government in Brazil and also in the media and then also in those sort of other sort of powerful groups, the religious groups, the sort of social groups. There are voices on those in those spaces that have the levers of power um, to control what is being said and thought of in, uh, amongst their followers. Yeah, and Bolsonaro at this time is still in the U.S., which discomfits a lot of people. He's kind of got like this, you know, Elvis meets, you know, um, some kind of religious shrine thing going on where people are like showing up, just trying to see him and touch the hem of his garments. It's all very 
Creepy. Gross. <laughs> For I want to bring it back to the United States and then and then go global from there. Our political developments and movements have ripple effects around the world. How do you see far-right populism growing here? Since the midterm elections last year in particular, do you see far-right Semitism growing? And do you see an effort on the part of the right to differentiate from the right and the far-right? Ooh, you know, the the last part is really interesting, like differentiation between the right and the far-right. I think what you saw is that the center-right has essentially mainly caved in America. There was an exodus of center-right Republicans from the House of Representatives. They just resigned or failed to—I mean, they didn't resign. They they declined to run again. They saw the writing on the wall that their brand of kind of the, you know, George H.W. Bush, i.e. President Bush the first style, you know, politics was no longer welcomed. Um, there are some people of prominence left from that wing, which is, you know, includes people like Mitt Romney. But you really saw a hollowing out of the center right and and certainly of uh, kind of the ideological neocon movement, which is very disenfranchised right now in Washington. Um, then there's the right, which I would say is, you know, House Speaker McCarthy, but he's playing footsie with the far right, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's now trying to present herself as the new center right. So if you followed all of that, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like doing the hustle, but we're getting hustled, you know. <laughs> and, um, or hijacked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that honestly, um, I'm I'm not always on our roundtables quite this breathless because first of all I'm usually in the host seat and I'm there's going to be a lot more roundtables hosted by you and other folks and I'm really excited about that but I'm really disturbed as someone who's covered every presidential election since 1996 who has been to the Colorado River Tea, tea Party convention <laughs> uh, in Arizona and shown up for I've, I show up for everybody I've interviewed Klan people in person Tea Party Black Lives Matter, uh, immigration activists, like I show up to hear what Americans have to say. But the level of dissociation from fact and truth is palpable. And once again, it comes to money. My first gig as a political analyst was on CNN during the 96 election with someone named Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, who is now Kellyanne Conway, who coined the term alternative facts. And that is a hell in a handbasket phrase. When you no longer believe in the truth, that you believe that your opinion is the truth and everyone else's truth is an opinion, that's a problem. That's where we are. And to me, the difference between um, the sort of ethical right, and I have Republican relatives, you know, black Republican relatives, you want to talk about wandering in the wilderness (laughs) without a glass of water, you know, (laughs) like the sort of Colin Powell wing of Republicanism, not doing so great right now. But, um, But in any case, like to me, the, the the ethical right is something I want to see in American politics, and they're really disenfranchised, and some of them are breaking with the far right, and some of them, like, you know, uh, the current Speaker of the House are playing footsie. When you're seeing this play out on a global scale, too, over the last several years, we've seen an increase in far-right populism and nationalism around the world. So, for example, in France, Italy, Sweden, Hungary, Brazil, and the United States, of course. In some of these countries, the left won recent elections, but these were not easy wins. Bumi, why is this trend growing? And to what extent are political developments, movements, or far-right groups here in the United States playing a role in this? Yeah, why why is it 
growing? That's such a big question. And there are lots of factors. I would like to highlight just maybe two of those. The first is I think people are just tired. People are just Mm -hmm. tired of, from their perspective, you know, being left out, being uh, criminalized, feeling like they're not getting anywhere with their families or their communities or what have you. being forgotten the the old ways, right? Like the way we used to do things and the way we used to rear our families and the way we used to engage. So I think that across the board around the world, um, and I would like to say that I think that if you look at sort of migration patterns, I think a lot of that has to do with fueling uh, some of the sort of alternative quote unquote facts uh, that are out there. I think when you look at countries that you mentioned, like France, like Italy, like Hungary, they're experiencing large numbers of migration. I'm not saying that this is their fault. I'm just saying that there have been studies that looked at, you know, as uh, particularly black and brown immigrants or refugees come into these spaces, you see a direct correlation with the amount of hate um, and sort of uh, visceral disdain for for change. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so you start to see that people feel left out. Well, now there's this there's a mosque when there wasn't a mosque. Does that mean that they're going to, you know, invoke Sharia law in my community? Right. It starts. And we saw that here in the United States. Um, so I think that that's one aspect is just people are tired of change, tired of feeling like they're left out, that they're not heard, and they're feeling, frankly, threatened. Um, and then I will also say that um, I do think that America, for better or worse, is like the uh, adult in your life who you admire but also hate. So whatever they do, you kind of do or it kind of signals to you that you can do. So if you had a parent or an uncle or an aunt who was a musician, right? And, uh, you know, they were always bringing their guitar to the, the house party or whatever, that has an effect on you one way or another, right? And so I do think that America is sort of... Uh, issues with democracy, uh, issues with racism. I mean, look at the voting rights issues that we've had, The certainly the the assassination or the killing, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, going back further, you know, all of the things that we have been dealing with in the United States, um, I think has been giving further fuel to others to, to do similar things or to act in similar ways. Um, and, and that's what, uh, I think is the result and certainly across these groups. And, um, there are certainly, I'm sure people who've studied social movements with the advent of technology, it's so much easier now for hate groups to connect in the same way that it's easier for those who believe in black lives matter or whatever, right. Climate justice groups. Um, we can all connect now so much more easily. So the tactics and the ideologies, the lessons learned from all of these groups, it's just so much easier to share that, you know, look at Ukraine, right? And the number of American soldiers or f- veterans who went over to the Ukraine to fight on behalf of the Ukrainians, right? Like, I think that has a lot to do with the access to media and to technologies and movements being able to connect in these ways. And so that's that's what I see um, as the reasoning behind some of this is the spread. Farai, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how much you see all this as a threat to democracy. I know you can't predict the future. None of us clearly can. But how much will this hurt our democracy? And just generally, what concerns do you have? But also, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, are there signs that give you hope as well that this phase will die down? Well, you know, first, thank you. I've loved this conversation, Um, Bumi and Hagar. It's been such a pleasure. I want to leave people with a two-book reading list and very much to the question of, like, will it ramp down or is there hope 
um, no and yes. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I believe we're entering a period of increased threat for domestic terrorism because we are a very divided, heavily armed country with people in elected office who say stupid things like, next time we'll win or something like that. Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, we had a reporter on here who said Marjorie Taylor Greene was scared for her life on January 6th, but now she's acting like her people got the boot from the people's house. So, hmm, on that. But a book that I really enjoyed was What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And this was by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry, who's an expert on trauma. And it talks about how trauma comes from things happening uh, too much, too soon, or too fast. There are a lot of things that happen to people like changes in the labor economy that destabilize people. And I think we're going through a trauma and we have the potential for what um, Oprah and Dr. Perry called post-traumatic wisdom. Like, we will never be the same after this. Brazil will never be the same. America will never be the same. But we could be better if we get ourselves together. And the other one, which I'm just starting to reread, is Future Shock, which is a 1970 bestseller by Alvin Toffler, basically talks about how this too much, too fast, too soon applies to rapidly advancing technological societies and how, you know, you think about 1970, you're at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, birth control, uh, much more electronic technology in the homes and the disruption of the labor economy through technological advances. And so we're kind of re-experiencing a future shock. So I'm going back to the reading material because I don't think we can be the same. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, both globally and in the United States. But I am hoping for some post-traumatic wisdom. I'm going to hang on to the fact that you think it will get better eventually. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go, Bumi, you work to amplify experts of color in this space. Can you just tell us quickly more about how you do that? Yes, absolutely. So I work at Howard University on a program uh, that does just that. So we, for 20 years, have been bringing uh, diversity into the diplomatic course, specifically at the Department of State. I work with um, not just undergrads, but uh, those professionals who've been out in the working world and are trying to figure out how to break into this space. It's not easy to do. It's not intuitive. Uh, fortunately, the sector is opening up uh, in a lot of ways. We see now paid internships that were a barrier for students of color and people of color to just kind of like get into, for example, into the Hill or the White House. We're seeing more paid internships. We're seeing more mentorship and pipeline programs. We're seeing a lot of uh, uh, organizations or companies, foundations funding study abroad programs because we know international experience or international affairs is contingent on some travel abroad. So yeah, that's what I do. I'm happy to talk to uh, parents, students, professionals, uh, anybody who's interested uh, in breaking into this space. And I just have to give a shout out. I love this. Um, A shout out to Tiaji Sio, who I met at the Harvard Kennedy School. She is a German diplomat uh, who is a woman of African descent who runs Diplomats of Color and who's doing something parallel to you in Germany. So I think you two should connect. Oh, that's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to say that this is, I think a lot of what we're doing um, in this conversation is divine timing. I don't think that it's comfortable by any means, but I do think that uh, unfortunately the 
the situation with George Floyd sparked a lot of uh, action that is necessary. And I just can't wait to continue to connect with people um, such as the women you mentioned. And of course, you, Farai and Hagar, shout out to you for all the work that you've been doing because uh, these topics are so, so important uh, for, for, for our healing, for our growth and so on. Amazing. Thank you so much, Bumi. Thank you, Farai. Thank you, Hagar. This has been great. And thank you, Farai. Thank you for letting me host this. Hey, Hagar, this has been 110% my pleasure. That was Bumi Akinusotu, foreign policy enthusiast, creator of the What in the World podcast, and deputy director of the Wrangell Fellowship at Howard University. And Farai Chidea, creator and host of Our Body Politic. And that was Hagar Shamali, foreign policy expert and host of the YouTube show, Oh My World. Thanks for listening. <laughs>